Welcome to the Composting Consciousness Podcast, hosted by Gray Garland and myself, Tango Faye Batelli. Composting Consciousness is an alchemical container of aliveness and alignment aimed at re-enchanting reality with curiosity and creativity. The work of composting your consciousness is you doing you with what you have. Deceptively simple, deeply nuanced. Today's episode begins with Gray asking me about my blog post, Six Signs You Are Sidequesting to Death, which leads us into talking about uh, purpose, humility, and threat modeling. Gray brings the reticular activating system into our conversation, and I call it the RAC instead RAS for the entire episode. (laughs) From the mind to the body, we of course move on to the topic of emotional processing, particularly tone policing, judging others, and uh, other micro power plays. Gray prompts me to go on a rant about my pet peeve regarding binary logic, And then we question the concept of personality and go into reality creation. Near the end, we speak on building one's relationship with the inner witness and decentering from ego. So grab your supplies for making art, your shoes for taking a walk, or even a broom to get some some cleaning accomplished. And settle in for about an hour of musing and giggling from your favorite friendly neighborhood existential gardeners. I was looking back through your recent articles for Audigom and just your articles in general. It's fun to reread them. And oh my God, just by the way, I, I love so many of your metaphors and analogies and your writing style. It's delicious to go back and read. <laughs> Thank it's you. Like your side quest article. And you were talking, you had two different bullet points. One about like, do you fill your day with side oh, quests? Wait. You from? said you said Audicom and not composting consciousness. <laughs> I was like, what all have I written in Audicom lately? Um, but yeah, you meant composting Audicom consciousness. On the brain. I love yes. it. Yes. So I, you had two bullet points in your side quest article. One about like, do you fill your day with side quests to avoid being present? Mm-hmm. And another about, um, do you feel like you lack purpose? And that made me think about like assigning a purpose and how really if you assign yourself a purpose, if you just decide to have a purpose rather than thinking that like life needs to give you one or you need to earn one, I think there are a lot of underlying beliefs for that, then you kind of stop filling your day with side quests mm. that you, but like these, these two things to me play like a really big um, part in like sovereignty and I love that I was just- you point that out because I was actually really hesitant to put that last bullet point in there about uh, really? about purpose. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I love like, maybe maybe this one's a little too silly. Uh, like my not silly. My one thing I'm still working on is that I overthink how someone could be critiquing me or arguing with me or not that yet was hearing thing me. I was going to ask you. About. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I've made a lot of progress, but I still have like a ways I could go. Um, And that was one that like my inner critic was just like, okay, if someone's just barely following along up till now, you're going to lose them on this one. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, the other shoulder was like, but if someone's really been following along, they might actually be willing to hear this one and it would hit deeper (laughs) than just like general avoidant stuff. And I think the the purpose thing is there's really that like dance back and forth of like choosing it and finding it. Like you really learn, you really learn what like allowing and like receiving means when you start Mm -hmm. like dancing with the purpose thing. But sometimes some of us aren't even ready for that layer yet. If you are still in like, um, hyper productivity. Like I think a lot of my side questing for the longest time was, you know, me trying to like make myself worth something or like produce more things. And then I might feel good, but really it was just 
you're just running away from yourself just more and more elaborately. Yes. <laughs> yes. So elaborately. That was a really good point about like, you can't just assign yourself a purpose because that can lead to you assigning yourself that's not actually aligned. Right? But you also can't totally just wait for it to be completely assigned to you. Yeah. This this is a paradox dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing I remember about that article is most of the fe- most of the feedback I got was people being like, uh, but I like side questing or but not all side questing is bad. And I had to be like, right. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> I, I thought I made it clear that there's nothing wrong with side questing, yeah. but I'm fascinated that that's like you just triggered some people. Just like, yeah. Just brought but, uh, that's in. kind of what I want to do. So like, that's my yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, not in a way that leads you to spiral or anything, but a way that you know, those light triggers are the portals for healing and waking up and shifting. And then the garden goes from a bunch of dead, crunchy plants to you're like, it's soft and pretty in here. What happened? Lush. I just had to be, <laughs> uh, I had to explore a little bit of humility. I had to be humble a little bit. Um, I'm, I, I can get on so many side topics now because I just remembered I went through a whole phase in Alaska when I was living on the sailboat of like, I like researched the etymology. I'm like, is to be humble and humility, are they the same thing? And like, what exactly are they? And I went down this whole yeah. like autistic rabbit hole of <laughs> trying to understand it. <laughs> and with like with so many else in my life, I decided to like do experiments, just do little daily life experiments with being humble or with humility. And that seemed to be the, the loophole, um, Mm. uh, with the ego. Cause obviously the ego part is the part that really doesn't like the humble thing. Um, because literally being humble is like the ego stepping out of center, out of the center of your identity for you to like receive something else. That might change that when your ego comes back in, it might change the shape of it, um, which for you could be growth, but from the myopic ego perspective, feels like death. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially like if you are in kind of the self sabotage worldview, mm-hmm. it can be really scary to think of the ego stepping aside because there are all these parts that you are like afraid to acknowledge have ulterior motives and other desires and ways of keeping you safe and stuff like that it'd be very scary like when you like you're saying like when you use the self-sabotage model you there's more room for like fear of hurting yourself Yeah, and you're in, like, control mode. So the ego gives you that illusion of control. Whereas Mm -hmm. if it steps aside and you allow other parts of self to float to the surface, then you might have to do a little bit of surrendering. You have to get into a little bit of humility that you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is, like, funny that you said something about, um, like, thinking of potential criticisms that you Mm. could get. Because I had... I've like made little notes of things that I wanted to ask you, which I only like had three bullets, but one of the bullets I put under that bullet of the thing that I just asked you was I was talking about from reading your forward article for composting consciousness about the idea of threat modeling and how this is like another way that we escape yourself by attuning exclusively to external views of self and how like comforting threat modeling can be and how it can keep you away from your own sovereignty. Ooh, comforting. Yeah. Um, I think it was huge for me to realize that comfort isn't just what literally feels like soft, nice, nourishing, warm, good, but to the body, comforting is just whatever is familiar. Like once I downloaded the, the like familiarity model, (laughs) so many things that look like self-sabotage that look like bad habits, whatever is just like, that's actually my body trying to get to homeostasis and the familiar homeostasis is being vigilant and being frustrated and yeah, externalizing and all those things. Um, This really dovetails with something you were talking about in one of your Instagram live streams recently about not wanting to 
not wanting to reveal too much of yourself and what you're doing so people so you're not opened up to people questioning you that's like that is one of the comforts of threat modeling is that if you don't trust your capacity to hold criticism and feedback and questioning then it makes sense to try to experience little doses of it ahead of time and try to like accommodate it in your own space rather than like at the spur of the moment when you're not expecting it it's like scary as hell this is so related back also like so for anyone who doesn't know me my brain stretches things like as woo woo and weird as possible to explore that space and also as like deeply practical and grounded and like sciency <laughs> as possible <laughs> um and i can't not do both of these things um and that had me realizing that like more and more people are open to like rhetoric and practices around the woo ideas of your thoughts generate your reality and uh, you're, you know, you're a body of light and you're a projector making your reality. And this rhetoric is a little outside my comfort zone, but I'm, I kind of agree and see what they're talking about. And I feel like what you mentioned is like the really practical science and kind of framing way to put it of like, no, watch yourself. You're literally... Before anything bad even happens, you've modeled, you've modeled the threats occurring, you've modeled how you're going to react to them and all of these things. Was there any space in there where you stopped and like modeled cool things that could happen, fun yes. things that could happen, loving things that could happen? Uh, so the ninja is interesting that that's what you're always mentally modeling and what you're always running into outside yourself. Fascinating. I think this is why when I first found out about the reticular activating system in the brain and how it literally filters based on what you expect, then all of the woo-woo stuff made sense to me. And I was like, oh, that is what's happening. Yeah, yeah. You could say more about that if you want, um, the RAC or whatever, uh, I if you know any more about it. Um yeah, I, d I don't know that I do. I just know that, that uh, like... I just wanted to, like, reinforce... I'm like, that's a great thing to bring bring up this, like, very literal biological filtering system. Like, yeah. your your body and your whole... Whatever. Your whole system is receiving... I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but so much data all the time, always. Yeah, you you possibly are, process. <laughs> you are always receiving so much data. And so, obviously in order yeah so much more than you could process so in order for us to like put a coherent you know idea and picture of the world together and communicate with each other and interact with the environment we obviously built over time really sophisticated filtering systems the filtering systems aren't sentient no. so what are they running on stuff like, like familiarity that's what kept you alive just regulated nervous system state you are in survival mode your your body is like we're not okay we need to be okay we need to stay balanced here and we're already at a disadvantage so it's like actively filtering for what are the threats in my environment what might dysregulate me further that like you are you're filtering out all of the curiosity all of the like pleasure all of the expansion because the all of your focus has to be on like what could potentially upend this very delicate balance that I've got going on in my nervous system right now that's all I really remember about the RAC I just remember <laughs> that I took that away and was like yep well <laughs> <For when>, RAS <laughs> like that made me um I think for a lot of people they might think that those are their personality traits yeah. I was one of those people. Absolutely. I definitely, it wasn't until learning about like trauma stuff, nervous system stuff um, that I realized probably seven, 70, and this doesn't mean that I've reduced myself, but I mean like 70% of the things uh, three to five years ago that I thought were my personality traits were just trauma responses, coping mechanisms, uh, yeah. signs of the state that my nervous system was in. Um, and it's funny, like, if you think, oh, I used to be more like this in childhood, early childhood, well, that might have been before <laughs> you got yeah. chronically dysregulated um, because, I don't know, I went from being really uh, gregarious. Is that the word I want? Very, like, I don't know, social, outgoing, bubbly. I am a Gemini, very talkative, all the things, um, to being, you know, like total introvert hermit or whatever. Um and so many other things, little signs and stuff I'm noticing over time as I'm in regulation longer and longer. Uh, and I'm like, I think 
my social butterflyness is actually like slightly coming back as well, which I never would have predicted. I so deeply identified with the hermit thing. Um, mm. I think there are a lot of things, yeah, that are like phases of maturing and as I, as we already said, like signs of chronic dysregulation. Um, and those are just actually like fun journeys you can like swim through or, you know, like adventure through and then find like a whole new vaster version of yourself on the other side. Um, it's not like a, I think also sometimes when you first learn this, it can just make you feel sadder, worse, er, <laughs> especially if that's already what you're familiar with. <laughs> you're like, Oh, another thing to make me feel like shit. Um, I'm sorry. I could, I could keep riffing forever. You have to interrupt me at some point. Um, I'm, just, I'm vibing. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause I was suddenly like, cause again, like, I'm talking about myself even. I was very, uh, you know, I was doomed to chronic pain. Everything frustrated and annoyed me. And uh, I could critique everything and tell you why everything was wrong. And I could see the wrongness in everything. Um, And I had to to get to a point or had to. I ended up getting to a point where I ended up laughing at my own, I don't know, reasoning. Like it got so ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know if that's like my brain's trying, my brain's doing too many calculations now. It's like, is that an air sign thing? Is that an autistic thing? Is that a, and it I'm definitely, like, these questions relate aren't to relevant. it on a Gemini moon level <laughs> that like, there's always the part of me that's modeling ridiculous ways that people could react to me. And there's the other person like, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. But both one feels more real in my body than the other because <laughs> The fear that, like, someone could receive me in that way that's unlikely to happen is is so strong that, like, it has a stronger gravitational pull because that's what I'm believing also. It's, like, it's very much, like, oh, you had this, you had this quote from your I am now versus I am always uh, article that was just beautiful. You said, looking at the statements you make and actions you take is like interpreting the shadows cast by the fire of your beliefs. That it's like, those were the shadows cast by the fire of my belief that people will not like me. Things will not go right for me. I am doomed to always be in survival mode. I am doomed to always be putting out fires and just trying to get by. And yeah. Yeah. And if that's what, what, uh, what I had to realize over time, because, you know, you go through, you're like, wait, so the re- the thing I think is reality is not real. I'm lying to myself or like, wait, what's going on? Um, <laughs> and I had to learn like part of what I'm doing is training the filter and I actually have the agency to, I don't know, I guess you could say like, uh, update the algorithm <laughs> that, runs the filter, the reticular activating system, the, um, you know, what I end up noticing or not noticing what I end up like daydreaming or not daydreaming about as far as what I think is going to happen in the future or how I'm interpreting the past or how present I am at all in general. Um, cause your filter could be purposefully pushing out things that are the, the present is wonderful and very vulnerable, especially if there are things you're trying to protect yourself from. It's like I was talking to somebody recently in uh in Instagram DMs. I was kind of trying to they were like asking for some advice on trauma stuff and I was and talking about struggling to really feel positive emotions and feel like pleasurable things that it, it is like really scary initially if you've been living in threat mode and if you feel more comfortable with those like super sensitizing negative emotions if it feels safest to feel those things that might put you in danger or like you're preparing for the danger it can be really hard to feel the other end of the highly sensitizing emotions which is positive things I was trying to figure out like how did I start to just naturally update my filter and notice more pleasure and feel more pleasure And it also reminds me of how we were talking the other day about how like your your inner monologue will spin a lot more. You'll have a lot more overthinking if you are in a dysregulated nervous system state. That's like 
your filter also updates as your body updates because your filter is kind of reflecting the state of your nervous system and the state of your body. That if you feel under threat, then your brain and your brain's filter, your monologue and your filter are just, they're accommodating that. So when I started to feel safer, I just naturally, those things naturally kind of changed. And then all I had to do was just occasionally notice where I was reverting back to the old filter and recognize, no, wait, but if I tune into my body right now, I feel safe. I have a lot of safety in my life. I have all of this evidence of nervous system regulation that's been naturally happening lately to tell me that I'm safe. And that made it easier. It suddenly was like the positive feelings and the positive modeling of the world where the world is supporting me. I'm safe here. I'm safe to explore and experiment. I'm not in survival mode. Like that had more gravitational pull because my body reflected that. Because my body reflected that. I love that. Um, Like your body reflecting. Yeah, I can't. Reflecting your body. I can't get over. Well, I think that's why I was, I, you know, got hyped about you bringing up the RAC in general, because that's a great linkage between the mind, this like disembodied abstract uh, mental, more esoteric part of us and the physical body, the exoteric, uh, imminent, uh, we're talking actual like chemicals moving and neurons firing and things like that, um, directly influencing each other. So like the, the filter of your, of literally which information makes it to the front of your brain for you to reason about, (laughs) um, will affect your the thoughts you experience. Yes, um, it's like a feedback loop. Yeah. I wish the way we sort of see the linkage between the mind and the body there, I wish we understood more in a Western sense, because I'm sure lots of people understand emotions very well. But I wish in that Western scientific sense, we had a, a better understanding of what emotions are and we didn't just pretend like they don't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, cause there's clearly something extremely, you know, biological happening there as well. Yeah. If you can always, you can almost always find a, you know, a correlating sensation in the body to emotions you're experiencing. And if that doesn't make them real, then you're just gaslighting me. Fuck off. <laughs> about that in the body keeps the score where they were talking about how until like the invention of the fMRI, which I think was like 91 or something, Science did not even think about emotions. They were so like beneath us. Yeah. In terms of like our our priorities. And then whenever we could actually see that oh, there these are real things that are grounded in our biology, then they're like, "Oh, well maybe we'll study them then. Maybe we'll care about them a little bit." <laughs> I mean, it's honestly only been like it's been less than a couple hundred years uh since since people stopped actively perpetuating the belief that just women experience more emotions than men like by a lot yeah (laughs) we just thought like women experienced like 80 percent of emotions and of course we just studied women's health in general now like studies have actually shown that men a lot of times are more emotional and more sensitive that is what i've like read recently coming out (laughs) well that's probably i think when 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 I'm thinking about like binary gender children socialization, I think girls are put in situations where they kind of have to learn to regulate better. You need mm, to be, yeah. you know, you need to make yourself small. You need to be quiet and polite. Whereas the boys get away with more outbursts of emotion, which means like yeah. later on they've literally had less practice regulating emotions. Yeah. It's like um, little girls are also definitely expected to hold other people's emotions. It's, it's, yeah. it's a lot we're asking of young children. Yes. While also kind of denying that that layer of existence happens at all. So it's this weird, yes, freaky <gasps> cultural gaslight thing that went on for quite a while that I think is, I'm crossing my fingers, is dissolving uh, yeah. like in this generation. <laughs> yeah. I like think we're all learning enough emotional labor. Women are realizing, oh, I, I don't just have to do this by existing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's like I scrolled past uh, a reel that I think was, 
Oh no, I'm going to lose it. Um, someone speaking in a house. I don't know if it was the federal house. I think it actually might've been like the Idaho state house or something, but, uh, she was basically saying like, you asked me, uh, to leave because I wasn't asked me to stop speaking because I didn't meet decorum rules. (laughs) I wasn't fitting your decorum. And, uh, she said this more articulately than I can repeat or whatever, but she got around to basically saying like, if we can't have a conversation about this because you're requiring decorum, if you won't listen to these people because decorum, then you're just using decorum as a tool of oppression. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just like in the bathroom brushing my teeth or whatever. Yeah. Scrolling reels while I'm brushing my teeth. Cause, uh, that's what I do sometimes. It's my day off. So Wednesdays and Saturdays, I just got really insecure, uh, letting everyone know that I sometimes (laughs) scroll reels while brushing my teeth. I, uh, find myself so adorable. Brushing your teeth is a hell task and you have to make it easier somehow. (laughs) (laughs) But I like felt the need to clarify that I don't do this every day. It's okay, Tango, even if you did. Um, sorry, that was a fascinating self-awareness moment for me. Um, but anyway, in my head, I was just like, that's tone policing. Like, why well, I learned yes. about that in college over up. a decade ago. Like, why? Well, the part of me saying why is just young, naive, and idealist. But like, <laughs> why do we even have to keep like she shouldn't have had to have given a whole 60-second speech to just say, uh, I'm I'm my brain slowed down. I like felt the anger of her. Like I'm feeling the rage of it all of like, I shouldn't have to waste 60 seconds and use a lot of decorum to explain to you that, uh, I will not be letting tone policing interrupt the discussion we're having. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, it does make me think of how I, when I was younger, majorly tone policed from growing up with people who had no emotional regulation who would fly into rages and so I couldn't handle what it would activate in my nervous system and I just didn't want to have to feel those emotions and didn't want to have to self-regulate so I thought people should just be able to show up and talk calmly about things yeah Yeah, when we can't regulate ourselves we police others I definitely Mm -hmm. did that I especially did the grammar thing it was like um (laughs) Well, it was when I get a little uh, nerdy, like reading Foucault in college, uh, his part of his thing is like the will to power. And Mm -hmm. I started to understand power as like just another part of the basic diet that like a human needs. That's how my brain was thinking about it. Like we all need to feel realization. (laughs) We all (laughs) we need to feel power run through us in a way that is part of our autonomy and freedom and these other things we talk about. Um, But if you look at it in in the terms of power, it's like this whole new lens of way of looking at uh, just interactions. Um, And what I realized, or what I thought I was seeing. Uh, and of course, it actually took me a lot longer after seeing it externally to see it in myself. <laughs> uh, Naturally. It was like, oh, like institutions and governments and like the way we've organized society has taken away a lot of just general power that people would have in their families, in their communities, things like that. And so now we're doing this weird sideways thing where we're just doing these little micro power plays on people around us, trying to like... Yeah starving trying to scratch up crumbs you know what i mean and so i definitely was i could be having i could be (laughs) i could be having like i'm not arguing with this person or anything like that but i decide like they give me the perfect shot of like correcting their grammar or something and i just take it because that little crumb of like being correct or something just felt so good like that's how yes totally powerless and caged and small and sad and, like, i was if you as feel a teenager disempowered in your own life if you yeah. feel like you have no personal sense of sovereignty and you're just riding the victim triangle then you are really starving for power yeah you will take it wherever you can get it you will judge everyone for everything i was yes. so mean <laughs> same i spent so much time judging other people for just anything and everything and well, it like, felt like it's like when i say that i used to have an addiction to complaining because i think we've talked about that on the podcast i had an equal addiction and it feels like just really the same thing to judging people for anything that i could possibly pick up on yep yep <laughs> 
And like, I was just like, oh man, the autism really like adds to this too of of noticing these little details when you don't like fully fit into a situation or if you're not like locked in on the social engagement level with the people around you, then you tend to just like, you're not locked in. So you're kind of like looking around and you pick up on lots of stuff that other people don't pick up on. And if you're (laughs) immature and dysregulated and things like that, those things you pick up on, yeah, just become like ammo for being a wonderful judgmental bitch. (laughs) A lot of autistic people used to being socially persecuted, persecuted for not fitting in or not being able to do things that other peers developmentally can do and, and things like that, that you already feel like you need to kind of transfer that energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why I have so much more compassion when I see anyone do a, a little power play like that, especially yeah. if it's in my direction. I immediately know like, that's not about me. <laughs> that's about yeah. you. And even if you're being, being really mean about it, that's honestly just a reflection of some sort of pain you're in. And I don't mean that that's out of pity. I mean that out of like, no. that's my lens of what's going on. And I've, yet to run into a case where that's not true. And social media has bred so many, well, actually, police that are just like, it reminds me of the complaints on your side questing article that as much as that is also probably some people being triggered, it's probably also some people just, they are constantly looking for things to nitpick and judge in their environment because Mm -hmm. they need that stimulation. They need those little power plays. That is their homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, relatable <laughs> very relatable <laughs> I used to be CEO of the well actually police <laughs> favorite activity <laughs> I I'm I remember there's a couple like so because I've been interested in running my own small business for so long I've you know been looking at other people's small businesses and how they run them and let's let's look at this I've been looking at other people's small businesses for like eight or nine years now. And I've only been working on nervous system regulation stuff for like maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> so in those earlier years, I may or may not have sent some emails to people <laughs> <laughs> of my opinions on how they were running their business. While I, I did it. not have one, you know, it's like giving parenting advice when you have no kids. I absolutely did that. I was so disembodied and I used my energy to just hyper-focus on other people's projects that instead of like I could have been seeing more inspirational pieces or just collecting in my mind like the pieces I really loved and would want to put into my own business or something. But I wasn't looking at that at all. Yeah. I was looking at, I will never write copy like that. I will never make an offer like that. I would never do an interview like that. It's like you're using your creative energy to criticize other people. That a lot of people, when they don't own their creative energy and they don't feel safe expressing it, they they transmute it. Like my mom is the best example of that. That like she was a very creative person, but constantly telling herself that she wasn't creative. And, And like we heard her talk about this a lot growing up. And so she would just criticize the shit out of anything that I did creatively. And it just like, anytime I would like have a play, it was like the whole ride home. And up until I fucking got in bed to go to sleep, I would just be listening to her criticisms about my performance. And she never did any acting. She she didn't have any experience in in any of the things that I was doing. Oh, dear. Creative energy's got to go somewhere. Yep. Yeah, I had not... I don't think I'd fully put it together that that critique energy is like at a more root layer, a creative energy. Yeah, that's uh, why a lot of critics are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking, so I was uh, one of your, I think this is also from the forward article. You were talking about how it's one of your pet peeves when people misuse binary logic. And again, I really, really liked this example. You said binaries are like house slippers in that, of course, your house slippers keep falling apart when you wear them all over town in situations they weren't designed for. Thank you for resurrecting my old metaphors. (laughs) 
That's like <laughs> such an old pet peeve with me too, like well over a decade pet peeve because I- Yes, you showed me like some college art of yours where you were saying like binaries are brackets, not boxes. Yes, that was my thing. I annoyed so many people with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, they're they're like crutch tools for like- Everything is so nuanced and complicated. Everything in life is a spectrum, which is why another one of my pet peeves is calling autism being on the spectrum. I'm like, no, everything is a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> that the phrase literally, I just, sneaky. I think, yeah. <laughs> so I get, and then also when I was in college is when everything started to become problematic. Like we learned the mm-hmm. term problematic and people decided to apply it to anything that was anything with a rhetoric of, of binary logic in it. <clears throat> and then they just, they, they stopped all reception. Like, I'm, I'm like, you're not even trying to understand what the statement is saying. You're seeing the signal of binary logic and then just going problematic. Like you just have this simple little yeah. you know, oh. flip switch. And that drove me bonkers because then I, then I watched a bunch of my peers try and like delete it from their vocabulary and their thinking and whatnot. And then I watched all these fun, weird pitfalls they fell into or confusions and frustrations. Like boundaries are important. We need boundaries. We need binaries. Yeah. These are all important (laughs) rhetorical tools. (laughs) Like uh, the, the yes and can hold the either or. The either or cannot hold the yes and. So like you you just need a framework that sees the binary logic as like a tool within it, not the whole, it's not the whole frame. It's just something within it that can be really helpful when things get really like nuanced and complicated and there's too many categories. And like, if you try like seriously, where am I going with this? It's not like people actually could just magically delete. If you could magically delete binary thinking out of your mind, you would be be magically deleting the left hemisphere of the brain. Well, yeah. Well, I was going <laughs> to Yeah, I was going to say you'd be amazed at how you could not make decisions. You're just like decision making and if you already consider yourself a bad decision maker, you're doomed. <laughs> um, As a Libra rising, I do understand this. <laughs> um, you you can yeah. paralyze yourself with too much nuance. I went bonkers trying to explain to a friend of mine, especially like the masculine feminine binary. I'm like these terms mm-hmm. and concepts and and how we're using them in this particular discipline we're talking about has very little, almost nothing. You could make some argument, but very little to do with like humans and bodies, let alone genitalia or anything like that. We're over here in archetype land. And <laughs> the point of this binary system is that some things are so vague or complicated, it's at least a way of talking about, are they similar or not? So like, especially with something like astrology, you could be like, okay, well, let's talk about the, the. it's not just that moon, feminine, sun, masculine. No, everything has both. Everything has both. It's a tool for ultimate relativity. So we could be like, oh, so like, what are the feminine traits of the sun and the moon and then what are the masculine traits of the sun and the moon because both have both and it's like a way of drawing patterns and understanding structures but but you know that that's not actually the the reality like you can look at blueprints of a building and you know that there's not actually the little brackets and numbers and stuff that's just part of drawing the blueprints it's it's not that complicated (laughs) There are many um, layers and ways of modeling things. Yeah. But if you're not familiar with thinking about thinking, that might not be immediately intuitive, um, which then just kind of re- makes me loop back to like critiquing a thing you don't know about. It's funny how almost everyone will be willing to critique uh, philosophers' models of thinking. And it's like, well, how much time do you actually spend reflecting on your how your thinking works? <laughs> That is something that I did not understand for many years because I feel like autistic people, I mean, maybe this is not as general as I'm thinking, but I think we mostly do spend a lot of time thinking about our thinking. Oh, yeah. Spend a a lot of time in the metacognition zone. (laughs) And I just used to think it was, it was like, is everybody not doing this? They're like, how do some people just not understand how they work at all? (laughs) 
Um, I've brought this up on, I, uh, I co-host another podcast called a team where we're all autistic and this kind of what we talk about and sometimes not at all what we talk about. <laughs> uh, and I don't think this covers all of autistic metacognition, but I do think a big part of it is that when you learn you're autistic, you go, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. in order to, do, and in order to do that and then understand you have to start looking at yourself. You have to start kind of like yeah. taking apart the pieces of your puzzle. Whereas most people, if they don't ever receive that kind of like diagnosis that says you're a little different from most people, they're, they don't have a reason to kind of turn around and reflect on that. They don't have a reason to like look under the hood and take the pieces apart. Yeah. Um, which like, I, I guess this doesn't have to be an entirely autistic podcast, but um, <laughs> then at that point there's like the benefit of learning more about yourself but then the uh the con that you're now almost even more a little distant from other people because you might talk about pieces of yourself and they're still thinking of themselves as a monad and now there's just even more of an inference gap be between yes. you if you're trying to like bond um big time <laughs> But I still, I just, I can't think of one, I can't think of good reasons not to be, not to like self-reflect. I just feel like most problems in most people's lives, not all of them, don't fight me. I mean, you can, but I didn't say all of them. <laughs> most problems could be radically changed, if not solved, with uh, a reflection process. It's just wild. I, I used to think, honestly... I kind of wish I were one of those people that didn't self-respect, that just didn't ever question, am I the problem? <laughs> it's just like, what a wonderful world to live in where if somebody's just an asshole to you, they're like, oh, what's their problem? I only said something really shitty to them and they had a bad reaction. <laughs> like, what must that be like? Victim triangle realness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Why is it only in this moment that my brain is overlaying the victim triangle model and like the privilege oppression model? And then it makes so much more sense now that like part of privilege is just like it makes the ride, the ride of the triangle easier and it helps you just like stay on the ride. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, like someone innocently said to me, a friend of mine said to me, like, <laughs> Well, you just, you're the kind of person, like they framed it like it was our personalities. You're the kind of person who's more likely to, you know, question institutions and mainstream authority. And I'm the kind of person who's more likely to just kind of go ahead with what, you know, with what the mainstream people are saying. And I had to stop them and so be like- So you have no internal authority and you think that that's just okay. <laughs> I had to no stop offense. them and be like, well- uh, let's, <laughs> let's look at our identity categories here. You know, like I'm not a huge identity politics person, but, um, it's still real. Uh, <laughs> mm. and you've had way more experiences where you engage with those mainstream institutions and you have an easy beneficial outcome. And mm. I have way more experiences where I engage with these institutions and I have horrible outcomes. So who's more likely to question it and not question it? Is that our personality traits? Like I'm not like I'm at the point I'm I'm in a I'm in a place right now where I'm questioning the entire concept of personality. Like I'm wondering if it's just like a bucket we made for these other things we didn't understand. Like don't get me wrong, I still think at the end of the day I will find, you know, like uniqueness and I still feel like I have a a thing that coagulates the tango being that I am. Um, but I'm allowing myself to be more like ambiguous and complex while I explore because yeah. this small concrete box thing that's supposed to be my personality and your personality. And it just seems more and more like magical bullshit. The more I unpack. Well, it's <laughs> like, learn. I feel like personality is very closely aligned with your ego and that you need it Ooh. as an anchoring point, but it also needs to be flexible and updatable and influenceable. That, that's why people who have personality disorders can't function because mm -hmm. they don't have that anchor. Yeah. But what you were saying about like overlaying the oppression model with the victim triangle made me think of something that Ari said 
recently, they were talking about how we focus so much on privilege and like we focus so much on trying to get rid of privilege when it's more about what you do with privilege. And that to me comes from being on the victim triangle and being obsessed with, I am disempowered. Some people have no power. Everybody has some power. It's like, you're probably just not using your power. You're probably just not aware of your power. It's like, it'd be more helpful to focus more on like, what privilege slash power do I have and how can I maximize it? Yes. Because otherwise you just get really trapped in this privilege is a thing that's privilege slash power. Because I really think those two things are the same thing. Is something that only certain people have. And it's determined exclusively by our societal system. Because yes, um, systemic oppression exists. Nobody's trying to argue against that. <laughs> but it's like, like, this is what I like about, about how like P... And Ari talk about reality creation and about like being able to hold both that like, yes, we have systemic oppression. Yes, some people's some people have more power to wield within this system, but this system isn't all of reality. Like if you're attuning to like our political system and our social system as like all of reality, then it's going to seem that way. But if you tune into your reality creation ability and the fact that there's there's a wider universe of things going on here that you have the ability to influence, then it starts to look like, oh, well, how do I play this chess game while recognizing that I'm not on the board? I am above the board. I'm looking at the board. I'm moving things around on the board. And honestly, you're at an advantage because most people who are on the board, most of the, you know, white hetero cis people who are at the top of the the power dynamics of that chessboard they think they're just on the board they are not like most of them are not super tuned into how they are also like pulling strings on this larger reality we all are i think because i slay I see everything as like, you know, those nesting egg fractal type things. So like to me, each country, I mean, the world is its own full body. Each country is like a working little body, um, just the same way my my body is made of like individual living cells or whatever. Um, yeah. And yeah, so there is no not participating. <laughs> there is no pause, only forward. <laughs> Um, no one's gonna get a reference to my own poetry but that's fine (laughs) i was reading that and i like teared up at the end i was like she sees so much more in my art than i do (laughs) (laughs) um it was so weird it was like my sophomore year of college i started doodling everything moves everything changes in the margin of all of my notes and i don't even know why i just made the letters all pretty and i didn't really think about the words um, but literally everything moves, everything changes. I think I was somehow like, like you were casting a spell on yourself. Cause isn't that oh. kind of like the goal of most magic <laughs> to like go kind through of. the motions and not be thinking too, not too be much. too zoned in on what it means, but kind of let it work in the background. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I somehow forced my, I downloaded the Buddhist law of impermanence pretty deeply. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I want to be able to inject it into other people because I think it's also part of what makes me more comfortable with big identity shifts, identity yeah. breakdowns and breakthroughs and stuff like that um, of like, well, whoever I am is not a static thing because there are no static things. So it just makes sense that I'm going to change. And why not apply my agency to that change? That would be cool. Um, that might mean, or that might be like what it is to be human. Um, I love thinking about what it might be mean to be human because I do think we are meaning makers, even though yeah. some people seem to think that's blasphemy. Um, Weird. <laughs> <laughs> I will be so brazen then. <laughs> It's like also like having a regulated nervous system and being able to tune into that feeling of opening that comes with like personal truth and resonance and contraction that comes with something not quite fitting really helps you get through those identity shifts and think of yourself as a little more malleable because you always have that anchor point. Like you can always feel what is more 
part of this cloud of traits that you call your personality and what's kind of falling away and what's emerging? It feels silly that this is only occurring to me in this moment. Uh, but it was when you said that, that I was like, so many spiritual practices are regulating for the nervous system. Yes. Duh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Humans are geniuses. <laughs> I was like, just, I don't know if I was reading about that recently on Instagram or if it's just that the post made me think about that, but I was telling Cody that, that like, yeah, we, that like, we kind of constructed psychology from philosophy and a lot of like Eastern religions and stuff. But then we took away all the stuff that was regulating about it. And like all of those things were just kind of encompassed in those, those spiritual practices anyway. No, nobody was thinking about it in terms of nervous system regulation. We didn't have those labels yet. It just is naturally kind of holistically regulating and perfect. I I can't stand people who think that like semi-ancient and ancient humans were basically like childlike and foolish. I'm just like, no, man. We've like they just knew things intuitively. They didn't need their brain to like to kind what, of have this. I think very what's certain I think what certain moment. bros these days, I'll get a little rude. Uh I think what certain bros these <laughs> days don't realize is even like the concept of having terms for everything, especially like scientific or technical terms, the concept of having technical terms for everything is new in the last few hundred years. So of the many thousands of years of human history, no, maybe they didn't feel the need to be able to like talk about all these things in like detailed linguistic verbal ways, because like you were saying, so much of it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and when you ha- when you are high empathy, high emotional intelligence, there's so much more information that can be transmitted. So much more. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, dude, it is crazy how how much more aware I am of all of these things happening around me now that I'm no longer living exclusively in my head. And trying mm-hmm. to figure everything out. Like, I always think of it as, like, I was living in the attic of my body. Like, yeah. there's no kitchen in there. There's no stove. There's oh. there's none of the things that I need to actually do things in this tiny little Harry Potter closet that I have made for myself <laughs> at the top of my body. And to add to that, like, I res- that resonates so much. To add to that, like, I thought that was the whole house. Yes, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why it's, like, such a feeling. Like, I was telling Cody recently that I was, like, I don't feel enlightened in that, like, spiritual master way that people describe. But it feels like a a type of enlightenment just to be embodied and realize, oh, there is a whole ecosystem under here that I didn't know existed. That's such Mm -hmm. a magical feeling. I mean, I felt so, like, just lonely in my own self in a way that feels entirely foreign to me nowadays. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I mean, also lonely externally, the loneliness obviously permeated everything, but it was, it was, it's, I don't even know how to put it into words the way I felt lonely in myself then. And the way I feel, I don't, what is the opposite? What is the opposite without sounding like, yeah, like I it used to just be foreign to me that I could just deal with my own emotions because I was cut off from my internal witness. That when I finally mm. started, it finally kicked in for me when I started doing like reparenting inner child connection stuff that when I have to imagine my inner child, then suddenly I'm aware of the fact that oh, there's this other me that's always been here in a very parent-like fashion just watching everything that happens and empathizing with me. But because I haven't been connected to them, I've just felt alone in all this the whole time. Mm. Which you really can't feel it until you do become embodied. I've, it's, it's almost like you really can't connect with the inner witness until you connect with your body. Well, I think I started building the witness relationship for quite a while before I really did like somatic stuff. Um, there's probably layers of truth to what you're saying. I'm just noticing 
things that would stand out. Because it, it didn't feel like real and concrete to me. I didn't feel held by it. I could I could like watch myself. I could do that version of mindfulness, but it wasn't actually therapeutic to me. Okay, maybe I maybe I do agree more. <laughs> okay, I, I get it more now because I was thinking. Um, I came across the witnessing, the witness self witnessing concept um, from an Eckhart Tolle audiobook that I got. <laughs> um, I think I have his actual book, A New Earth, but I was listening to the audiobook, The Power of Now, you know, where he's trying mm-hmm. to teach you how to be present. Um, he's like the master of presence, practically, of our lifetime. Um, and I didn't have a ton going on in my life. Like that was the time I was kind of like fishing during certain seasons and my job was only like 20 hours a week online. And I had all of this open time that I became, um, it was around the time that I pick up Eckhart Tolle. I think I told you this a while ago of like, cause I was a very, um, sciencey, literal, you know, anti-spiritual, anti-magic, anti-religion, all of these things person for the longest time um, until moved to Alaska and got some hair up my ass or what, however that phrase goes <laughs> to uh, be like, I'm going to read some books that use like the word magic. I just want to know like what these people are on about, you know, I think because I had started studying astrology a couple years prior in order to prove it wrong and I actually just got more and more interested in astrology. And I'm like, but some of these astrology people just talk about magic a lot. And I roll my eyes so hard. But other things they say seem really brilliant and apply to my life really well. So I was willing to like, you know, explore. And somehow down that trail, I found Eckhart Tolle. And uh, the 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 witness part um, made the, suddenly so much like spaciousness within myself. Like it wasn't like, you know, I felt better the next day or whatever, but there was a, a, a large enough that it was abrasive to me kind of a change within a week of just like listening to this book and exploring this like concept a, in myself. Like hardcore identified with your internal monologue, first person ego perspective for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and when you have been identified with it for so long and then suddenly the the epicenter of identity shifts you're like was that other thing fake like it's hard to hold both if you're not like ready for the paradox of the thing um you're going to you know have we brought up confabulating on here before the mind abhors a vacuum and so if it doesn't understand what's happening it will confabulate a story and it might be like oh that whole person you thought you were is fake because you're actually this person and uh, maybe that's what certain personality <laughs> disorders are or something when that doesn't work out. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, I'm realizing as I explained that, that it reminds me of how like it was only once I read a book that described the onset of capitalism and like what life was like before or around capitalism. It was like, I actually got a look outside the whole box kind of thing that capitalism itself made sense that uh, Eckhart Tolle and other people talking about something outside the ego, like what could be there, but like I've heard descriptions of the ego, but when you're, you know, you can tell me what capitalism is while I live in it. And I'm kind of like, I don't get what else it could be. It's all I've ever known. Uh. So you can tell me about the ego while I'm in it. And I'll be like, okay, sure. But it's all I've ever known. And then having these more like witness centered experiences and you can see from outside the ego perspective, which is the beginning of what Carl Jung calls individuation, where you're decentering from ego, uh, is trippy as fuck, but then awesome because it's it almost goes back to the attic thing where you're like, there's so many more rooms, or like this estate has way more acres on it. There's a fucking treehouse out there that's new. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's so cool. Um yeah. yeah, it doesn't make you think about like the stages of healing and personal awakening because listening to you talk about that, I do remember a distinct phase. Like mostly, I think it was probably around the time that me and Cody moved in together, and I was like noticing our differences, noticing like, oh, we're so similar in all these respects, but we have different habits and ways of showing up, which tells me that those are floating on top of my personality and 
that I could like, I could change those and maybe those are not set in stone. So I did like experience like a little burst of growth for a couple years in there from that. But I remembered this distinct point where mindfulness just wasn't working for me anymore. That I'm like, but I still feel the gravitational pull of all of these feelings that are the shadows of my belief fire. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get to those other elements. Yeah. 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 Oh man. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the composting consciousness podcast. Gray Garland and Tango Faye Vitelli. Follow us on Instagram at composting underscore consciousness or on Twitter at compost underscore thyself. You can read our blog, download our free PDF on how to compost your victimhood. Uh, you can get on the wait list for our sewing sovereignty program coming this June. You can schedule a one-on-one coaching call with either one of us and or join our mailing list to receive updates on all of our upcoming offerings over at compostingconsciousness.podia.com. That's compostingconsciousness.podia.com. And remember, every thought you think and every action you take is coming from a part of you that loves you like deeply, dearly, unconditionally. It's gooey and loving and gross, and that's really all there is to you.